there was a study about COVID bots that had data that I could audit. And when I looked at it, so many of these bots, yeah, they were technically bots, but it was like my local health clinic posts a hand-washing PSA every day at noon, and that is on an automated timer. And that is absolutely bot activity. But that's just regular like community management and marketing from a, from a hospital, right? Like that's, that's not what people think of when they see a headline that says 50% of, you know, all highly influential accounts about COVID are bots. It's like, well, yeah, most of the influential accounts about COVID are from hospitals or governments or other institutions that use software tools to augment their social media presence. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 2nd, 2020. It's another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation. This week, Evelyn Dweck and I spoke with Darius Kazemi, an internet artist and bot maker extraordinaire. Recently, there have been a lot of ominous headlines about bots, including an NPR article stating that nearly 50% of all Twitter commentary about the pandemic was driven by bots. That sounds bad. But Darius thinks we shouldn't be so worried about bots. In fact, he argues, a great deal of reporting and research on bots is often wrong and actually causes harm by drumming up needless worry and limiting online conversation. So what is a bot anyway? Do they unfairly take the blame for the state of online spaces? And if weeding out bot activity isn't a simple way to cultivate healthier spaces, what other options are there for building a less unpleasant internet? It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 2nd. Darius Kazemi on the Great Bot Panic. Darius, thank you for coming on the podcast. Let's just start this conversation with the simplest question possible. What is a bot? That is unfortunately not the simplest question possible, but I'm happy to entertain it anyway. Uh, There are lots of definitions for a bot. The one that I like to give all the time For me, the definition is a bot is a piece of software that communicates with humans through a channel that was designed for humans to talk to humans. So when you get a robocall, that's a bot. When you get, you know, instant message from an automated thing, that's a bot or a text from your doctor's office, that's a bot. Twitter, obviously, there are bots on there. But like an error message that pops up on a computer screen that's not a bot because that's designed for a computer to talk to a person. So that's sort of where I draw the distinction. Perfect. And and we'll get into some of why it's not a simple question and the problems that that causes in a while. But let's start with sort of, you've been building bots for a while. Maybe you can walk us through some of your background and what got you interested in this and like basically just give us your bot cred. Yeah, Sure. So I, well, it's, it's, I've been making bots on some level since the AOL instant messenger days in the late early two thousands, I'd say I built my first AOL instant messenger bot. And that was just a utility thing. I could enter the name of a video game and then I would get its Metacritic score. So I could know if I was, well, I was, you know, this is before I had internet on my phone. So it was like, while I was shopping, I could text message and, and, and get information. It was purely utilitarian. But that was like not what I consider part of my bot practice. Uh, it was in 2012 that I started making uh, Twitter bots in earnest at a rate of anywhere between one a month to one a week. I made something like 
80 or 90 bots over the course of five years. And it was kind of part of, a, of an artistic practice for me. I would make bots that would uh, act as commentary on internet culture. For example, they might generate memes or generate, um, how would I put this, parodies of memes. Or I would make bots that generate um, just pretty art, like visual art. Or I would make bots that do um, uh, generative poetry and that sort of thing. Uh, and my art practice in general was more around um, generative content and generative language. So I run this thing called NanoGenmo, which is like NanoRimo. In this case, it's National Novel Generation Month, and and programmers work to write code that generates an entire novel over the month of November. So stuff like that is really where my like artistic, my artistic and fun influences uh, and tendencies lie. I'm also trained as a programmer, which is why I do this stuff in computer code. Uh, it's sort of my chosen medium, and uh, yeah, that's so you know really my bot cred is spending five to seven or eight years now as one of the more visible bot creators out there. I also help organize the community. I ran something called Bot Summit and put together a ran a bunch of sort of uh, Slack groups and stuff for bot makers and that kind of thing. So, but, but strictly on my end, it was usually on the, the white hat side of things, the people making fun bots that make art. Yeah, so let, let's talk about the sort of how bots have developed um, in practice and in sort of the broader cultural understanding over those seven to eight years. Because the way you describe it, I feel like for for people who were sort of on the internet and aware of bot culture in the mid-aughts, bots were kind of a fun, cool thing where you can make art like you describe. Now, if you ask some, you know, the average Twitter user or Facebook user, you know, what do you think of when you think of bot, they'd probably say something like, you know, scary Russians or something like that, right? So have you noticed a change in sort of the role bots play or how people think of bots over the time you've been working on them? Yeah, there were, I would say, a, a couple of phases to the change. One was, you know, it sort of started out in that, oh, these are these fun things we can interact with, sort of sense of what a bot is. Around 2015, bots became the new venture capital buzzword for like a hot minute, for like a year. Every startup needed to say they had a bot. And it was, it was, it was, it was just out of control. Millions and millions of dollars in venture capital were poured into bot platforms and Slack launched a, you know, a bot app store. And like it was, it was frankly uh, ill-advised. <laughs> and it was it was sort of technological solutionism of like of uh you know oh chatbot assistance will be the new way of interacting with things just like apps became the new way of interacting with things back in 20 you know 2008 or so 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 that was what i'd call the, the next phase and that was really basically just in 2015 and then of course 2016 rolled around we had the elections and we had all of these intimations of disinformation being sown by bots. Uh, and over the course of that year, bot went from this mostly technical term to something that I, I think is more akin to a slur at this point. Uh, I do a lot of work asking people to report bots to me, but also I ask them why they reported something as a bot. And very often, they're aware that the person is a human. They're just calling them a bot anyway. Okay, so probably epitomizing that, 
um, is how we first encountered each other, um, which is through something that I like to unofficially call Botgate, or what Alex Stamos of Stanford called Le Faire COVID Bots, um, which involved a wild claim in an NPR article that had the clickbaity headline, nearly half of accounts tweeting about coronavirus are likely bots. And this article went wild on Twitter. It was retweeted by Hillary Clinton. And it sounds really bad. Like 50% of um, COVID tweets, are, that, that's a lot of bots. How did you come across this story and why didn't you believe it? Uh, I think I just saw the story retweeted into my feed as millions and millions of people probably did. And I, I saw the headline and I just immediately thought that's, that's bullshit. That is not, that, that cannot be correct in the way that it is claiming to be correct. It was purely a hunch obviously, but I, I have a lot of domain knowledge about bots. So I think it's a pretty well-informed hunch. Uh, and so I went and clicked on the article. I saw that it was from a group at like a lab at CMU. And I do what I do with all science news articles, which is I tried to click through the study, but there wasn't a link to a study. There wasn't a link to anything. So I had to like do some sleuthing and found out that it was based on a press release that was based on an a forthcoming study that hadn't been published or preprinted or anything. So I was just, it was just all these red flags for me all in a row. The claims that they were making, I couldn't even verify as true or false. They were simply claims. And I mean, the thing is as well, like one of the reasons why I think it spread so far is it confirmed a lot of people's priors about what they feel about social media right now. You know, that it's all just sort of awash with disinformation and bots in the generic slur sense, um, like you said, rather than um, sort of the technical sense. And one of the things that we're exploring in this series uh, is often that, you know, research about social media can fall subject to exactly the same dynamics that the research likes to criticize. So clearly, uh, clickbaity or hyperbolic claims about bots and disinformation are likely to get more attention and so are somewhat incentivized, um, which is one of the things we criticize about, about social media environments as well. So what's the danger here? I mean, one, of the, one, one argument could be uh, stories like that raise awareness about the existence of bots and make people more skeptical about what they see online. Why isn't that a good thing? Well, what I, what I end up seeing is really more of a chilling effect it, you know, on on genuine discourse that could be happening. Uh, you know, I, I see over and over again, I have a, I have a persistent Twitter search for the phrase paid bot. People love shutting down the arguments of other people. And these are obviously people. These are people who are getting in arguments over and over and like over the course of, you know, 12 different back and forths. And then eventually one of them goes, oh, well, you're just a paid bot anyway. I don't have to listen to you. And I think, you know, I don't want to like, I don't want to split linguistic hairs here. Like I think technically they might mean paid troll, but sometimes I'll 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 dig in and ask the person like what what did you mean by paid bot? And they were like, yeah, I think it's a piece of software that's been designed to argue with me or something. Usually that's not the case. Usually they do think it's a person, but regardless, this um this bot fear uh, leads people to dismiss basically anything that they don't agree with. There's a great Nancy comic from Olivia James that came out a couple of years ago where where you know it goes something like you can't just dismiss all criticism you don't agree with as coming from a bot and then Nancy's just imagining Sluggo who just said that to her like as a robot it's just uh, <laughs> you know I, I I love that one I actually I'm literally I have the t-shirt of that I'm wearing it right now and 
<laughs> That's awesome. And I just, uh, yeah, it's it's got this chilling effect on discourse. And also there's this question of like, what do people label as a bot? What sorts of ideas do people label as a bot? And also what types of people do people label as bots? And this is a broad question about, uh, I guess, um, I would say, like sociologically how people label things bots, but also when you look at the research and you look at the the kind of AI-based tooling, what I've been trying to do is is drill down and figure out what tools like Botometer, which is a very widely used tool by both the public and social science researchers, what does that think a bot is? And what I find very distressing about it is that, for example, Botometer has extremely high rates of false positives on non-English language accounts. It has extremely high rates of false positives on accounts that don't speak English terribly well or on accounts that speak in like uh, perfectly uh, fluent English, but it's like a, like a Creole or a Patois or something, right? So you could find someone who English is their primary language, but they use a kind of slang that is not standard business English. And suddenly this, this AI tool tags them as a bot and people use these tools and they'll go, oh, you got a 4.5 on bottom meter. So I, I, I can't trust you. That's really interesting. So, so I want to push you a little bit more on that. When you say there's a, a chilling effect, is, it, is what you're worried about that there will be less communication between groups that may not, you know, speak in exactly the same English or exactly the same language? Because say, if I, you know, if I'm speaking standard American English in my tweets, and I look at someone who's speaking a Patois and say, aha, you're, you know, you got a 5.0 rating on bottom meter, that I'm less likely to listen to what that person has to say? Is it that that person is less likely to, to try to communicate with me? Like, I want to drill down a little more in like, what specifically is the harm here in your view? Yeah, I think th- that's a that's a very I guess my my example there is a very individual one and to address that some more. Uh, yeah, I I do think it just gives people another excuse to not listen to people who aren't like them, which, you know, it's it's an interesting position for me because I also do a lot of study uh, and uh uh well, I guess not study, but more practical work on alternative social media. And I actually think that having spaces where you are not constantly bombarded with with uh, people of different viewpoints is actually a, can be a really good thing. So I'm not saying I'm not one of these like people who's always banging on about the filter bubble and how it's bad or whatever. I personally think filter bubbles are fine as long as you're controlling your filters, or that someone you trust is controlling your filters. The problem for me is when you know, people have access to these tools that are telling them that people are not trustworthy, but they don't even know what the criteria of the tools are. It's just a magic box that says this person is trustworthy or not. And that's on the individual level. I think what's more harmful than that kind of chilling effect is the broader effect on um, social science papers, for example. Uh, Bottometer is widely cited. It is by far the most used tool in social science papers that talk about the prevalence of bots on the internet or on Twitter, at least. And it has so many flaws and you end up with studies like the one, uh, you know, I couldn't audit the one from CMU, but I audited similar studies. And the thing that I noticed was that like there was a study about COVID 
bots that had data that I could audit. And when I looked at it, so many of these bots, yeah, they were technically bots, but it was like my local health clinic posts a hand-washing PSA every day at noon, and that is on an automated timer. And that is absolutely bot activity. But that's just regular like community management and marketing from a from a hospital, right? Like that's that's not what people think of when they see a headline that says 50% of you know all highly influential accounts about COVID are bots. It's like, well, yeah, most of the influential accounts about COVID are from hospitals or governments or other institutions that use software tools to augment their social media presence. Yeah. And I mean, the other point that you made about the COVID tweets was like, at the time, everyone was tweeting about COVID. Like, all of the humans that I knew were definitely humans were tweeting about COVID. Um, and, and so, you know, it's, it's kind of um, the, the claim in that NPR article seemed particularly sort of outlandish in that context. But these tools that you've been talking about and like we, you know, the one um, in the study, but just sort of generally bottometer and bottonot, you, you, and, and like another one, um, the Hamilton 68 dashboard, they really have achieved like an outsized place in discourse around bots. And, you know, like you said, they, they turn up in media stories a lot. Are there any that do it well, or is there any way to reliably look at this? Because, I mean, it seems unsatisfactory to say all of these are flawed, so we should just sort of throw up our hands and not really worry about bots online. So is there any way of sort of uh, studying it or looking at it at all? I mean, I think you need to do the hard work and look at every single account in your sample set and have someone trained to figure this sort of thing out. It's not an answer that a lot of researchers want to hear. Researchers are pressed for time and money and they want large data sets. And of course, the easiest way to do that is to run an AI on, you know, uh, uh, 10 million collected tweets or whatever. But unfortunately, it just doesn't hold up that we don't have tools that really allow us to do that. The false positives are just through the roof on this sort of thing. Uh, like uh, some some researchers are seeing more than 50% false positives from tools like this. So it's, I, I think it's unethical to use these. It's not even that these tools are flawed. Like I think they are, it is unethical to use them. If you, if you go to the FAQ for bottom meter and for Hamilton 68, you will see a huge list of caveats. Okay, this tool does not find this type of account or this type of account. And it tends to flag this type of account that's not actually a bot. And our definition of bot is very narrow, but in that in that, you know, narrow definition, we are technically correct. So it's we're a great tool. And personally, uh I have made a lot of tools for social media. And I would say about 50% of the tools that I have set out to make to help people, I have scrapped partway through because partway through I realized, oh, I'm hitting an ethical wall here where my tool could very easily cause just as much harm as it causes good. And so I scrap 50%, maybe more than 50% of my social media tooling projects uh, because it's so easy to hit these uh, potential uh, negative repercussions. And uh, so, you know, I, I don't know, I have a I have a pretty high bar for what I consider ethical to post as a software tool. Uh, and I wish other people could as well. On, on the other hand, you know, you look at 
labs that publish this kind of stuff and they get so much funding. So there's so much, um, there's a lot of incentive to just put the caveats up there and go and throw your hands up and go, well, if people use this, they didn't read the manual and that's too bad. Yeah, I think that the Hamilton 68 example is a really interesting one because I've, um, I feel like I've kind of watched that project develop over the last few years and it has always struck me that the the way that the project is des- is described on the site is as you say like there's a ton of caveats about how people should be interpreting the data and that you know it doesn't mean that everything that tweets you know whatever hashtag is a bot or anything like that and then it is just routinely cited again and again in news outlets as you know, everyone who's tweeting this hashtag is a bot or something like that, right? And that it it, it really is has been striking to me how the researchers seem to be trying um, as best they can to give those caveats and make people understand the limits of what they're doing, and it just like completely spins out of control again and again. So. I mean, is there any way to discuss bots responsibly without making that underlying data available? Or do you just think that that sort of maximum transparency, even total transparency, is the only way to ethically do this? Yeah, I I, I basically fall on the maximum transparency part. I also, as I mentioned earlier, am fully in support of not publishing tools that require caveats like this. It's funny. I've talked to some researchers who have been involved in creation of some of these tools, and I've talked to researchers who who use them in their studies, and they express enormous frustration with the way that journalists report on their studies. And and I have some level of sympathy for that. I, you know, I've been misquoted in articles as well, uh, or not even misquoted, but just like quoted out of context. And it's, it is frustrating. Uh, and it's, but it's also very easy, especially when it's about a study that you've released. Like if you're, if you're releasing a study about a topic that is, that you know, is in the news right now, like you're like, if you're writing a paper on COVID-19 bots in 2020, you know that this is something that could be picked up by press. And probably part of your goal, or at least your school's goal, is for it to be picked up by by press, right? So, you know, you need to to really put forward as a researcher, like, okay, yes, this study exists, and here is like, you know, I've written up guidelines on my website for how journalists should interpret it. Like, basically, do a do like a press release for the study itself. And I know this is so much extra work and it's not things that scientists are are trained in, but I I don't care. Uh, I think it, it, it has to be done or you should hang up your hat and go home. Uh, you're not doing good science if you can't communicate to the public in a way that the public can interpret. This, of course, also ties into like, you know, science journalism just getting decimated in the last 10 years in terms of funding and stuff. Like we, you know, we used to have trained science journalists with a science background who know how to read papers and ask questions about them. And we just don't anymore. It's usually tech reporters now. So it's, it's a crappy layer cake of just <laughs> of problems, basically, unfortunately. 
<laughs> you are a tough taskmaster, Darius. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, and I'm, it does sound exhausting, um, sort of the work that you're describing, but it also does sound, you know, uh, incredibly necessary because otherwise we are feeding the, what was it, crappy layer cake. Yeah. Do the hard work. That's, that's basically what my message to everyone comes down to. Work, work better. Like, be better at your jobs, please. <laughs> we try every day. Um, <laughs> so, okay, the, I guess we have this problem that we kind of – it's hard to define and it's hard to actually get really good data and study. It's, it's really hard to do this research. But, you know, as we were talking about before, one of the reasons why Botgate happened is there's this sort of sense, this general anxiety in people's priors about social media being overrun with bots and exploited by bad actors um, and this idea that sort of platforms are absentee landlords that have just sort of let their services run out of control. What do you think about those anxieties in general, even if we can't establish, like even if 50% of pandemic tweets are definitely not by bots and we can't establish what percentage there there are and you know how many of them are, are, are Russians or whatever, um, what do you think about the sort of general anxieties? Is there any merit to them? Absolutely. I think there are for sure bad actors out there. There are people who just go out and groups of people who just go out to to spread disinformation because it's fun, for example, um, or they do it for social brownie points, or they maybe they are actually, you know, like with the 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 IRA, you know, that that they are agents of foreign governments trying to influence things. I, it's these people do exist, but then we get into a really interesting question for me of like at what point do you draw the line between a bad or nefarious actor and then someone who just doesn't agree with you or doesn't behave in a way that you agree with one person's bad actor is another person's hero you know people look at say black lives matter protesters who go shut down a highway right and to some people those folks are the worst kind of bad actors they're directly harming the economy etc and then to other people those folks are heroes and they're 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 making a stand for what they believe in and you can find uh, similar analogies on any point in the political spectrum basically so you know for me it's like where where do you draw these lines it's really a tricky question to me there's there's very few activities that i would say are not genuine speech on some level it's usually just speech you find very distasteful uh and then want to label some way i'd say like harassment like targeted harassment to me makes sense as something that is absolutely a bad actor type of situation but a lot of this like you know if it's people if it's people posting stuff, even if it's about how like, you know, aliens are already living among us and whatever, like, man, I, I don't know. I'm not going to call those people bad actors. I'm going to be like, we should, you know, maybe, you know, fund our social safety net better or something. <laughs> You sound like a free speech scholar, uh, Darius, with the slippery slope that, you know, these are exactly the kinds of things that I spend a, a lot of my time uh, debating with people. And I think, like, this difficulty of line drawing is, is so hard. You know, we're, we're talking about it in the context of bots and what constitutes, you know, a bad bot. But one of the other areas we see this a lot and sort of I'm obsessed with and we've talked about on this podcast series is, you know, this coordinated inauthentic behavior idea um, that we're rooting out these influence campaigns. But to a certain extent, 
content, sort of everything on the internet is varying degrees of coordinated and inauthentic. And it really is like, it sounds technical to the, to say the phrase, but it's really hard to work out, you know, where you draw the line and it's not at all a, a judgment free call. And, and I think, you know, we saw this recently when everyone was celebrating the TikTok teens that pranked Trump's uh, Tulsa rally. Um, but you know, you can easily imagine a different set of actors doing exactly that thing to a different target um, and the headlines not being quite so praise-filled. Uh, right, exactly. Yeah. And so how do you draw that line? I mean, it, it, it's, it's kind of the impossible question. And when, when we were talking about this uh, before, one of the things you said to me is that Part of the problem is that social media platforms incentivize people to act like bots or incentivize people to coordinate inauthentically. What do you mean by that? Right. So a lot of the a lot of the behavior you see, especially from teenagers online who are doing activism, is they have this sense of how the social media algorithms work. And uh, like I saw something a few weeks back, maybe um, about. Teenagers on TikTok coordinating to put things in their shopping cart, but not buy them on Trump's campaign website uh, with the understanding that that would somehow hurt the campaign. And that comes from a sort of folk understanding, maybe, of how these algorithms work. And they feel incentivized to go as a group and do this so that they can get what they want. Or like uh, when... When people, the I, I have very um, mixed feelings about this trend of um, of including the phrase "arrest the cops who killed Breonna Taylor" in your tweets in order to help get things um, trending. Uh, mostly because I think it's kind of tasteless to turn that incident into a meme. But the reason people do it is to coordinate around getting her name trending on Twitter. Uh, and it's seen as like a way of keeping things in the public discourse, which, uh, you know, something being a trending topic on Twitter does mean that it is on some level in the public discourse, at least in the sphere of Twitter, which we could get into a whole other conversation about how Twitter is like 1% of the public internet space, but we treat it sometimes like it's 100%. Anyhow, I run a project called Run Your Own Social. It is the uh, available at the URL, runyourown.social. And it came out of, of a fellowship that I did uh, with the Ford Foundation and, and Mozilla and Code for Science and Society. And, and what that is, it, it, version one was intended to be a guide for people who want to run their own small online social media spaces. And I love the idea of small online social media spaces, particularly ones where the communities actually have a, like an IT person who controls the code that's running things because you can turn off features that you feel like incentivize bad behavior. Like I run a, a Mastodon instance for a bunch of my friends and that's sort of like a decentralized alternative to, uh, to Twitter. And, you know, they in, Mastodon introduced a new feature for hashtag trending. And my users were like, you know, we don't like this. This is this. This just seems like popularity contest stuff. And I was like, OK, I'll turn it off. And so I just turned it off and we don't have hashtag trending on our site. Like it just doesn't exist. And I've done things like delve into the code and change how the incentives underlying the algorithm actually work. And I can communicate that with my users. And we have this like discussion, this fruitful discussion about our own incentives. 
but I think most people when they're on big corporate social media don't have access to that. This kind of gets back to the whole like, you know, you can't really control your own filters on that kind of thing. Uh, partly because even if they let you control your filters, you're not actually educated on how. In these smaller social media nodes, you know, when someone joins Friend Camp, which is what my site's called, we're like 50 people. I do an hour-long onboarding with them over video where I like walk them through all the stuff that I think they should know. And of course, that doesn't scale. Mark Zuckerberg can't do uh, an hour-long onboarding with every new Facebook user, nor would I probably want to have a phone call with Mark Zuckerberg. But it, there's this thing that just happens when social media scales and you start applying the same algorithm to everyone. It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. Uh, I mean, it, it almost, you know, I put on my sort of bigger thinking hat and I, it makes me think about like on a, on a broader sense, like the nation state and like, how do you make a law that, that applies evenly across a massive amount of land in all these different socioeconomic classes and have it be fair to everybody? And I think the answer there is that you just kind of can't, you know, you're going to leave some people in the lurch. That's just the, the, you know, law, these people, I'm not the first person to say this, but laws are essentially writing code for people to follow. And I feel the same way as a programmer. That's first off, I just want to say that friend camp sounds like paradise <laughs> Com compared to the, the total jungle of uh, Twitter and Facebook right now. I mean, I think that it gets to something really interesting, though. Like, I was thinking when you were describing the incentives around scientific papers around bots right now that that actually sounds like it is reproducing some of the screwy incentives that exist now on social media platforms in large part I'm sure because a lot of these papers are disseminated on social media and you know NPR writes a story and the editor puts in a headline that will get people to click right that all of this is part of, it's sort of wrapped up in this same ecosystem. I've seen a lot of discussion among epidemiologists, scientists regarding COVID, where there's this sort of flood of uh, preprint papers. So papers that haven't been accepted in journals just sort of appearing. Some of that's good, right? Because people can discuss new research a lot more quickly than they might be able to otherwise. But it also means that there's a lot of crap that kind of gets out there and you know, the average Twitter user can click on it and say, you know, this looks like a scientific paper, right? right. And, and they don't have the ability to detect the bullshit. All of this is a big wind up to say what you're describing in terms of the smaller sort of walled garden social media spaces sounds great. Is the, like, is there any way to fix these sort of incentives in your view on the bigger platforms or is the is the answer kind of that you know the big platforms are always going to be kind of a mess and people looking for something different should try out the smaller more tailored services yeah so you know when i think about these small communities in my mind they're not even walled gardens in my I, I like to use the um squishy amoeba metaphor instead i like the amoeba metaphor because when you look at an amoeba you know what is inside of it and what's outside of it so there is a border but it's like a porous border right so the thing about friend camp is we are 50 people on this one server this one computer sitting in a closet somewhere but we also have access to about two million other people 
and they all live on their own little amoeba islands. And we sort of pass information freely, somewhat freely between each other, except, except what this lets us do is every one of these little islands has its own set of norms. And some of these sets of norms are stronger than others. Uh, part of my project is I'm trying to convince people to set extremely strong norms on their islands. Uh, for example, uh, Friend Camp, we are not pro-free speech on Friend Camp. We are simply not. We're 50 people. We're a small community. And we have like really strong norms around what flies as speech and what doesn't. And we have consensus because we're only 50 people, right? So we can all kind of agree on that sort of thing. And, and if there is a flare up, we can pretty easily, you know, figure out what the tension is and, and uh, uh, smooth it over in a way that leaves everybody happy. Uh, honestly, I feel like once you get up to even 150 or 200 people, that's no longer possible. In my ideal world, we would have a bunch of these little tiny 50-person islands with their very, very, very strong norms that do occasionally talk to each other or often talk to each other. But ultimately, it's like, oh, you come to to my island here and things are going to have to play by our rules. So, you know, I, I think that there could be a solution there. The, of course, the problem one of the big problems is a structural one, right? Like if you're going to have millions of, like if we want this model to reach everybody on earth the way that Facebook has, we would need, you know, a hundred million servers of a hundred people each talking to each other rather than one big server farm of a billion people like on Facebook. Uh, and that's, very, very, very hard, possibly impossible. Unfortunately, I think just just telling people like, oh, switch to an alternative to Twitter or whatever. I mean, ultimately, if those are run by companies, they are, their goal is to become the, ne the next Twitter, right? Uh, and I think scaling is really the issue here, like attempting to apply a flat series of norms to, you know, millions and millions of people is impossible. I think it's impossible for a thousand people. I think it's very hard for a hundred people. So. Yeah. It's, I know Evelyn wants to get in here, but before she does, I'll just say while you were talking, I was thinking about the, uh, the famous Norman Rockwell painting of freedom of speech, right. With the, you know, the guy standing up at the little new England town meeting and <laughs> that, that sort of, that is the American ideal of freedom of speech is actually within smaller communities. And a lot of what we've been struggling with, I think, in the last couple of years is sort of freedom of speech is always hard, but how particularly ugly it can get when you just have a truly unthinkable amount of people. So so the idea of sort of scaling down, it's a little retro in a way, right? Oh, yeah. I love Quinta's assumption that, oh, yeah, of course, everyone knows that Norman Rockwell painting. Um, <laughs> Most of our listenership is American. <laughs> okay. Um, it's just me then. I also love your idea, Darius, of this sort of utopia of a thousand friend camps being the answer to this problem. Um, and I'm fascinated by the solution of decentralization, which we're hearing more and more about. Because I think you're absolutely right that the scale makes things completely unmanageable. Um, and when you're operating at something like the scale of Facebook, you know, even 
0.1 of a percent error in content moderation is a phenomenal amount of errors that can do a phenomenal amount of damage. But I'm also, I'm, I'm a decentralization skeptic, I think, a little bit, um, in part because I don't think most of these places would have a one-hour onboarding experience with Darius, um, unless you can make a Darius bot to do it, in which case that would be awesome. But I, th- I also sort of wonder whether we would see a lot of the sort of same harms and problems recreating themselves on these platforms um, once they sort of, once people went to them, or indeed whether they already are there in a lot of cases, we just don't spend as much time thinking or talking about them because we're kind of busy with the dumpster fires that are Twitter and Facebook right now. Oh, um, oh I mean, the, the problems are absolutely there on decentralized social media. It's just a right. constant dumpster fire of these same problems over and over again. What I feel like I've hit on with FriendCamp is that we are not like that. And I think it is because it has to do with the sort of intentional non-scaling and slow growth and also uh, attention to care put into the community by myself and also, you know, the people who I would informally consider like our other our other leaders. I mean, we're actually working on figuring out like a governance structure. So it's not just a benevolent dictatorship by me. Um <laughs> It's, uh, you know, but we got, we, we got to work to get there, but I, I'm, I'm very conscious of that being a, an issue as well. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I think this is why like version 2.0 of run your own social project for me is going to be more about like teaching people to do, I mean, it's essentially community organizing work. It's just online. And there are people who are great at being online community organizers and I want to help train more people to to do that it's again it kind of gets back to my what i was saying about the academic stuff too it's hard work to make good spaces and i don't i I don't even know if it's possible to do it for a thousand people but it is possible to do it for 50 people and i know how and so i'm going to try and like teach people Right. And on the other side, though, some people put a lot of hard work into creating decentralized spaces that are not for good. Um, And, you know, we had an example uh, this week about sort of the Reddit subreddit, the Donald, which was sort of a a very toxic place that was ultimately only sort of dealt with by a more centralized governance structure, imposing order from the top rather than sort of that community bottom up uh, approach. So, you know, I, I think there's sort of pros and cons to, to both approaches and it's just sort of really hard to know, I guess. I, I guess the, the the best answer would be we run both possible worlds and see which one works out. Um, yeah, probably. Best. I, <laughs> I, I think about and I think about that sort of thing. So like on Friend Camp, I am constantly, I mean, I say constant, not, not con- it's not a huge moderation burden for one person when we're only 50 people. But at least once a week, I find a new server island out there that is absolutely dedicated to hate speech, for example, right? And But I press one button, and suddenly they are, like, walled off from us. And it's not even in – because our community lives on a different – just a completely different set of, like, hardware and software from that other community, you can actually wall those people off. Like, it's a much more um, reliable – and safe thing as opposed to on on Facebook where someone could if you block someone or you block a group someone could just create a new account and then like reappear and try to engage like we have we have discussion on friend camp that never leaves our friend camp server so when i think about stuff like the donald subreddit 
for example, and being squashed ultimately by centralization. Uh, you know, I I like the idea of having our own my own little space where I can say, well, this flies and this doesn't, and we're just going to block those people off. But those people can exist on their own islands. Like I think something else that came up came up for me recently was the idea that um, you know when I think I, I I'm a big fan of like hard size caps on things. I saw I saw some article getting passed around. Evelyn, maybe you saw this. It was about maybe it was on Wired. Facebook groups are private and secure, and here's why that's a bad thing. Yeah, I think there was something like Facebook groups are destroying democracy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They're destroying democracy. Here's why they're destroying democracy. And it's like, well, here's the thing. The researchers had really interesting um, recommendations. I don't know exactly how I feel about them, but they didn't seem as bad as the headline. Like, for example, the idea that Facebook groups should be capped at 5,000 people or some arbitrary number. And I, the more I thought about that, the more I actually kind of liked that. Because the the thing about gathering, I try to take it back to like IRL public spaces a lot and how we socialize there. I think one of the weird things about about the internet is that you can gather 100,000 people in secret. Like that is possible to do on a Facebook group. I mean, you know, obviously you'll always have people leaking and 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 whatever, but it's way more possible than gathering 100,000 people in secret in the real world, right? Like if you tried to do that in the real world, people would just see 100,000 people massing and they would go, what the hell's going on? and start asking questions. And so I think about these private spaces. I'm a big fan of just like putting hard caps on the number of people <laughs> allowed to group together, partly because in my own experiences, online stuff gets shitty when more than uh, a few hundred people are involved. I've been in so many private Facebook groups that were great up until they hit about 100 people. And then suddenly those that common understanding of norms breaks down and then it just hits like a lowest common denominator of the loudest and crappiest people start running the show. So, you know, it's uh, – I actually read the – you know, I did what I do with all those articles and I clicked through to see what they were actually saying. And, and you know, I, I, was, I was actually kind of impressed with some of their, um, their recommendations, headline aside. So let's we're we're running a little short on time. Um, so we just have a couple more questions, but we wanted to circle back around to to bots because we've kind of been discussing, you know, how how you're using your your technical wisdom for good. If if you say that you're suddenly black hat Darius, um, if you're using your bot knowledge and you wanted to spread disinformation, like speaking of large platforms where there are more than a hundred people, if you're on Twitter and you wanted to disseminate something negative using bots, like how would you go about doing that? Well, yeah, it's interesting because I don't think bots are really ultimately the best at spreading disinformation. I think it's those human coordinated networks, like the, like what Evelyn was saying, coordinated inauthentic behavior that is more effective. But if I was going to stick to to bots, I think I would just do the, the retweet bot, like I would just find messages and hashtags to sort of retweet but not comment upon and just kind of help get things trending and then leave the actual um, operations to humans. Great. And so I think sort of the upshot of what you're saying um, is we're sort of in the middle of a, of a bot hysteria, or I think you've written about it as a bot panic, and sort of we need to be a little bit more you know, calm down a little bit, not be so uh, concerned perhaps about bots and, and sort of focus as well on the on the idea that bots can be 
be beneficial and fun like they they used to be. So I mean, there's sort of some discussions around um, sort of either banning bots on on social media platforms or at the very least uh, labeling them. Although I suspect that you know if we go down the transparency route, we're going to run into a lot of the problems that we were talking about earlier about just like it being really difficult to uh, identify bots. Um, right. What do you think about sort of these policy responses that you're sort of seeing being discussed about bots? Do you think that they are responding to a problem that isn't really there? Or do you think there is some merit to the idea of, uh, you know, transparency or reducing the the way that bots can be used on platforms? You know, I don't know. I feel like so Twitter after the 2016 elections put in a lot more changes to their terms of service and and they discontinued some of the um, APIs that they had, which are what bot makers use to to do interesting things on Twitter. And as a result, I had to kind of just shut down my entire artistic practice because it was just too much of a pain in the ass to to deal with. It, you end up with this with the situation where um you know, especially online where it's sort of cheap to flaunt the rules, uh, you you always end up in a situation where bad actors just won't pay attention and will flaunt the rules and that's fine. And then the good actors will hang up their hat and go away. So I don't think most of the policies that I've seen put in place and, and the sort of tech, the tactics put together to address the bot problem really... A, just discourage good bot makers from doing their thing. B, I I do think that there's much less of a problem than they think. And yeah, it's just, uh, and it's, again, it's all related to everything else, right? It's driven by these studies that say, oh, there's so many bots out there. And, you know, when you go and look at it, it's not really true. So I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a big mess, but I, I'm not, I have not been, terribly impressed with the measures that I've seen put forward by different social media companies. So yeah, I guess that's what I got to say on that. Yeah, I think uh, it's a big mess is a good like summary for this episode and maybe every episode of this podcast. (laughs) On that note, Darius, um, thank you so much for joining us. This was a great conversation. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to The Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back for another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan, our audio engineer is Zachary Frank, and our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast in whatever app you use, and thanks for listening.